The first Bible reading tonight comes from Isaiah chapter 65, starting at verse 17, and it can be found on page 743 of the Church Bibles. Behold, I'll create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. But dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Okay, so the second reading tonight comes from uh, Revelation 21, and it's similar to what we've got up there on the, on the board. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be, in, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. And moving to Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the, on each side of the river stood a tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name, <coughs> and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the lamp, the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them the light and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, 
These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord of God, the Lord God of the spirits of the prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So I was in a seminar one day with some students. I was uh, the teacher in charge, but we had some videos to watch. And the videos showed examples of people who were a little bit older than them, but who'd obviously chosen to go down a path that was not helpful for them. In fact, it was quite disastrous. They ended up in a fair bit of trouble until, and it seemed in each case, somebody came along and said, look, you're going the wrong way. You need to change. And then when they changed, they realised the good they could do. And so they started trying to encourage others and help others and do some really good stuff. Now, the idea behind watching these videos is that the students would watch them and then think for themselves, maybe I can do that good. Maybe I can be motivated. Maybe it'll help me. And so as I'm trying to help them get on board with that idea and to be leaders and things like that, their response shocked me. It surprised me. They said, sir, that's not worth doing. I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, didn't you see that the people who were doing this, they had to fall to a really low level and have someone come and pick them up. So it's not worth us trying to do something good until we've fallen to that level. Now, some of us may be going, that's just a bit strange. I was personally shocked. I didn't know how to respond at the time. But then I thought about it and I thought about, well, hang on a minute. Where are they getting this idea from? And I looked at the society around them. A society that doesn't really have a sense anymore of what's right and wrong, except for what's the passing fad maybe, or whatever's right for the individual. Our society doesn't have those clear ideas anymore. It's very fluid. And anything seems to be permissible. We even now promote lifestyles that 20 years ago were considered unnatural. But now, if it's all right for you, then it's okay. Our society proclaims its advancement by claiming independence from any sort of spiritual power. So the idea of a God, no, you can't have that. It seems to me a very limited view in some ways. And today what I want to do is look at three sort of limited views from our society and then contrast them with God's limitless future for us. God's resurrection future that we have. Uh, I hope this helps us to see that you don't have to sink to the bottom of the barrel to be able to do anything, but that we actually have something great to look forward to. And maybe, just maybe, our world needs this wake-up call, the wake-up call of the book of Revelation, a book that goes beyond our feeble imaginations. We've been thinking about it, we've been looking at it, Over the last few weeks we've seen great victories, the resurrection victory in Jesus' death and resurrection achieving uh, that victory once and for all. But then the resurrection life where we live here and now with Satan there but bound and so we don't have to worry about him, but knowing judgment will finally come. But we've got this last scene, the future, the resurrection future. But there's one image I want to pull from back at the start of the Bible to help us understand before we jump into the passage for today. 
If you know your Bible back in Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 basically is creation. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve uh, eat the forbidden fruit and are basically, well, judged, kicked out of the garden and have to toil the ground. Chapter 4, well, instead of now just defying God, they decide to hate each other and kill each other. Uh, And so then in chapters 6 through to 8, basically, we see God going, this is had it, let's start again. And he sends a bit of a flood with Noah. And as soon as they get off the boat, they sin again. And so we get to Genesis chapter 11, and there's these people, these humans. No longer are they attacking each other. No longer are they defying God. But instead, they decide to build a great, massive city and a tower that reaches up to the heavens so that they might have a name for themselves, to make themselves great. Well, let's see the reversal of that image. Chapter 21 of Revelation, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. There's that image reversed. Instead of us trying to reach up to God and thinking we're somehow good, here is this new heaven and new earth coming down, beautifully dressed. Verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them. And be their God. It's an amazing image, this idea that God is no longer distant and not with us, but here he is dwelling with humanity. And so what does it mean for humanity? When God is dwelling with us, verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Can you imagine a world like that? I wonder whether we actually struggle to imagine a world like that. What's today? Well, it's April the 24th, but tomorrow, of course, is April the 25th. It's Anzac Day. That day when we remember those who gave their lives as a sacrifice for us. But here we are in the 21st century. We are currently fighting conflicts, but the one or two deaths that might happen, we hear about and the whole nation mourns. But if we were to go back 100 years, what was going on? Every family... Every person knew somebody who died in the First World War. It wasn't just a nation, it was every single person knew someone. The impact, the mourning, the death, the crying, I just can't imagine that. And yet here, we are promised the end of that. 
This is not a happiness movement where we're just going, oh, let's just be happy and get on with life, or the stiff upper lip that says, I'll be right, and stoically going on. No, there's a new picture. You see, in verse 5, it says, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Everything being made new, like it was meant to be, renewed to the original intention. And it's for those who trust in Jesus. Verse 6, he who said to me, sorry, he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. Thirsty, parched, needing a drink, needing life, and it comes as a gift. But just in case we'd forgotten, there's this reference that sort of seems to go back to earlier. Because in verse 8 it says very clearly, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulphur. This is the second death. You can't just pretend it's not going to happen. God continues to remind us that judgment is coming. But for those of us who are drinking from the water of life, we don't need to worry. We are saved by grace. There's no claim to greatness, nothing about us building a tower. Rather, it's God coming down and saving us and giving us this wonderful picture of Jesus' death and resurrection victory, this great thing that we're looking forward to. Now, I'm pretty sure every now and then here in this service, you guys pray a prayer that actually has this longing for this future inbuilt into it. I don't know whether you've thought about it this way, but the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. But really, to understand the prayer, it's far more longing than just that last little bit. It's actually, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Notice how there's this longing, this desire just built into that prayer that Jesus taught. I want to encourage you to pray that prayer with that longing, with that desire that Jesus' kingdom might come, that God's will might be done that we might praise him, hallow his name as it should be. So that's sort of hopefully dealing a little bit with that first limited view. But the second limited view that I want to raise for you today uh, is that we just can't imagine a place that is this good. You see, what's our experience? Our experience in life is that, well, things are going to be bad, And it's only when you experience the bad that you can recognise the good. 
but we can't imagine good going forever. It's like going on holiday. Uh, I'm sure Sean had a great time on his holiday, but he knew he had to come back. That could sound terrible, couldn't it, Sean? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for the love. Um, (laughs) I'm sure he wanted to come back and love us. But there's this sense where holidays don't last forever and we almost go, if it did, it wouldn't be like a holiday anymore, would it? It would just be life, as you might say. So we can't imagine something good without the bad. You've got to have the bad because then the good makes sense. But not in God's city. God paints a picture that's far beyond this. Let's close, zoom in closer now to the realities of this city. Verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. You get this sense of this city being glorious, being amazing, beyond our understanding. But here the picture, just a little bit further on, goes to show that it's not just a holy city, but it's a combination of both Old and New Testament coming together. The the division that was there no longer there because you've got the 12 tribes mentioned, but then you have the 12 apostles as well. Peace in that sense, now coming to be. Uh, But then there's also a bit of measurement going on. See, in verse 15, the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. Now, I don't want to go into all the details, but I just want you to imagine for a moment a cube and then make the cube a little bit bigger. Imagine the cube uh, starts at Perth and goes to Adelaide. We're talking a bit over 2,000 kilometres in a straight line. The cube is that wide, that long, but then it talks about the walls of the city being that high. It's incredible. It's beyond our imagination, isn't it? Although we think, hang on, I don't fly a plane, it takes a few hours, it's not really that big, is it? Think about the first century Jew. Here they are looking at this image and just going, that's bigger than the known world, isn't it? It's beyond their imagination. It's how great, how grandeur, how much grandeur this city has and all the detail of the stones and and the the 12 gates and, and what's in there and things like that. Right at the end of verse 21, the great street of the city was of pure gold like transparent glass. This is so good. It's better than any holiday. It's beyond our imagination. But we're not done yet. He keeps going. Verse 22, uh, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. What a picture. A city that is actually full of light. 
I don't know what your image of a city is like. My main image is, of course, of Sydney, for me anyway. And whenever I go to Sydney, I just feel cold. I feel like it's harsh. It's like a concrete jungle to me. Even when it's daylight, it feels like there's always cold breezes and it feels cold. And then as I look at the people as they walk to work and they're looking a metre in front of them, they don't look around and say, g'day. It's just beeline for work and they're wearing their suits. It's like they're in their business attire because that's what you do. It's all about the facade. It just feels cold and dark to me. And that's not even at night time. When I think about night time, as you walk along the streets and the, the drunks sometimes stumble out in front of you and you just go, well, what's going on there? And then you look in the corner and there's this person with all their worldly possessions sleeping on the streets. That vision of a city is so different to God's glorious, incredible city. Verse 24, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought in. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the most pure, wonderful, amazing city. The city that we should be looking forward to. The city that just blows out of our minds anything that we've ever seen. Now I said before that we were reversing Genesis 11, but there's a problem. Before Genesis 11 is Genesis 3, where we ate from the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil that caused us to be kicked out of the garden. But finally here we get a picture of this tree that we have always wanted. Chapter 22, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of the God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The reversal of that curse where Adam and Eve both ate of that fruit. It's now reversed where they couldn't have access to the tree of life and grab that. Now they have it. Now we have it. And it's a plentiful supply. It's not just one tree. It bears its fruit every month. Its leaves are healing for the nation's. And it goes on, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. The way things were always meant to be. Back at the very beginning, God's intention was always 
that we would have his son as our Lord, that we would serve him, that we would be in his presence and that he would be with us, loving us, caring for us. And here, finally, we get to see it. God's good, perfect intentions finally fulfilled. This is the future we're looking forward to. We don't need to know evil. You see, when you really know evil, you don't want to know it. You don't want to glory in it. It's not like the movies where we seem to think, yeah, anything can happen in the movies but, and it's not that bad. No, when you actually see pure evil, you don't want to know it. You actually want to know the good. You don't want to experience it. You want to experience good and this is the great good that we're looking forward to. You know, as I think about this, this is why, as Christians, we should be involved in the world. Because we want to point people to the resurrection future that we're looking forward to. We should have a say in society. We should speak up. If only to give them a little taste of God's great plans. We should try and help society to see the great that could be theirs if they trust in Jesus. And so we should help our society. We should try and help it see where it could go and how good it could be. It's a renewed creation. It's not that we're going to create it, but there's a sense where we want to head towards it. God is making things new. It's not a total wipeout, it's something new. But there's a third limited view that I want to deal with now. It's been about 2,000 years since this prophecy. Surely, in our society as we know it, there's got to be a new version coming out. Like, this is only heaven 2.0. Surely that we should be up to 5.0 and looking forward to 6.0 next year. It's been so long, 2,000 years ago. Is it ever actually going to happen? We live in this constantly changing world. Maybe some things need to improve. This is not a good enough vision, some will say. Surely they haven't looked at it in depth. Maybe that's why they avoid revelation. But for John, there is a real sense where there's actually immediacy to this. It's not something that we should go, oh, it's taken 2,000 years, it's going to take another 10, don't worry about it. No, four times he talks about the immediacy. Uh, pick it up with me in verse 6. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits and the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And then verse 7, behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. And then verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then over the page in verse 20, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Three times it's about Jesus. One more, the things that are about to take place. Don't think it's not going to happen. It could happen tomorrow. 
next week, next year, in a hundred years, a thousand years. It may be 10,000 years that we're still waiting, but it could happen. He is coming soon, not in our sense of soonness, but in God's sense of soonness. When you read through those last verses, you, you get a reference to um, Jesus being the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. David, who had this promise made to him a thousand years before Jesus, and people were thinking, is it ever going to happen? And then at the time that God chose, he sent his son. And so here, when God says, I'm coming soon, he's coming soon, we need to be ready. Because we need to remember that if we're not ready, well, there's going to be a problem. And so what do we do in the meantime? There's a few things. Uh, verse 9, uh, again, John makes a mistake. He falls down in front of the angel and the angel says, don't worship me, worship God. That's what we should do. Don't be overawed by this message, but keep our focus on God and worshipping him. Uh, secondly, we're allowed to allow people to live. We're not to take their lives um, verse uh, 11 this is that I'm thinking of let him who does wrong continue to do wrong let him who is vile continue to be vile let him who does right continue to do right and let him who is holy continue to be holy we're to keep on living there is a blessing that's going to come for those who are clean but outside the city other dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters and everyone else who loves and practices falsehood. Don't get it wrong. You want to be on the inside. You want to be in the book of life. And so we are called to come. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. The offer is there for us. The image of Jesus promising to come soon, the faithful one, means we do not need to worry about how long it takes. He is coming soon. God keeps his promises. We can rest assured in that. Knowing that he will come. In the meantime, we wait. We wait knowing we've had the resurrection victory. We live the resurrection life. And we look forward with great anticipation to something that is completely and amazingly beyond our imagination the resurrection future. And so as John finishes this book, surely we should finish in the same way. He says, Amen, come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that your Son would come back soon. In Jesus' name, amen.